In this podcast, Dr. Bill Mounts will be introducing the Sermon on the Mount. This is the first part of a 56-part podcast on Jesus' most famous sermon. Biblicaltraining.org provides a comprehensive biblical education from world-class professors to encourage spiritual growth in the church for free. In this podcast, we'll be sharing lectures and having special conversations about biblical topics that matter to you today. If you find these episodes helpful, please give us a good rating on iTunes and share them with your friends and networks. Well, the Sermon on the Mount is probably the best-known collection of Jesus' teachings anywhere in the Bible. In fact, the terminology of the sermon has permeated the English language. There are many people who talk about being salt of the earth, or turning the other cheek, or going the extra mile, or following the golden rule, and they probably don't have any idea where that language comes from. It's interesting, then, that John Stott, on his book on the Sermon on the Mount called Christian Counterculture, starts his book with this sentence. He says, the Sermon on the Mount is probably the best known part of the teaching of Jesus, though arguably it is the least understood, and certainly it is the least obeyed. I mean, we pray the Lord's Prayer, and we mean it. We realize that we are to seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and we make movement towards that. But do we really know what it means to turn the other cheek? Do we really understand what it means that if your right hand causes you to sin, then cut it off? How often do we give full weight to a verse like chapter 721 at the conclusion of the sermon where Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Sounds like a legalist, doesn't it? I wanted to start this series on the Sermon on the Mount by addressing some of the larger interpretive issues that, we're, that are going to keep coming up all the way through this series. I want to step back, as it were, and look at the forest as a whole and not get so focused on the individual trees. So we're going to, I'm going to paint a, a broad general picture, and then next Sunday we'll start looking at the individual tree uh, being poor in spirit. But I want to step back and look at some of these larger issues. The first of the larger issues is the fact that the Sermon on the Mount is addressed to disciples. The Sermon on the Mount is addressed to believers, to people who have already committed themselves to Jesus. Now, we know from the gospel, as it continues, some people's commitment was true, some was false, some was partial, some was complete. Understanding all of that, the sermon is addressed to disciples. The Sermon on the Mount is a manifesto. It is Jesus' description of how people who are in the kingdom of God should live. Now, we know that there was a larger crowd there than just those who had committed themselves to him, and some of that crowd may have been listening to Jesus, and in fact, sometimes you think you can see Jesus looking at that larger crowd of uncommitted people. 
But the focus of the sermon is on disciples, those who have committed to following Jesus Christ. That's a critical point because, for example, like in Matthew 7, 7, when he says, ask and it will be given to you, seek and you will find, knock and the door will be opened, is not a promise given to non-Christians. God makes no commitment of that sort to non-followers, to non-disciples of Jesus. Those promises are only for disciples of Jesus. So it's his manifesto. It is his description of how life should be for those who are within the kingdom of God, or in our language, are Christians. You know, while the Sermon on the Mount is difficult at places, and while the ethic is certainly lofty, it is an impossible ethic for non-Christians. There is simply no way for an unregenerated person who does not have the power of spirit to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then all these things will be added to you. It's simply not possible. I mean, you can make uh, some sort of, well, I kind of try to do this, and I try to turn the other cheek, and I try to love my enemies. But ultimately, while that is a difficult task for a disciple, it ultimately is an impossible task for a non-Christian. This is why Gandhi was wrong. Gandhi was the leader of India who led the uh, peaceful revolt against the British. And Gandhi is well known for saying that the Sermon on the Mount was the world's finest collection of ethical teaching. No, it's not. It's an impossible ethic for those who are not empowered by the Holy Spirit. So the Sermon on the Mount is not addressed to the world. It may have some ramifications and whatnot, but it is addressed to disciples all the way through. Second of all, the Sermon on the Mount is addressed to all disciples. In the history of Christianity, there was a man named Aquinas that formalized the distinction between what he called the clergy and the laity. In essence, he was establishing two different kinds of disciples. There were the religious folk, the preachers and the monks and the saints and whatnot. And then there are the regular folk, the laity, the people who have other jobs. And Aquinas argued that the ethics of the Sermon of the Mount were not for the laity, they were not for the regular folk, but rather they were for the clergy and whatnot. And that was a terrible thing for Aquinas to do. And that same teaching has made itself into the church today, and I don't use the word heresy lightly, but I believe it is a heresy because it strikes at the very core of what it is to be a Christian and get to heaven. And that is what is being taught today is that there are two classes of disciples. There are those who are saved who can live any way, they think they can live any way they want because they think they got a get-out-of-hell-free card. And then there are the disciples, those who, you know, want to grow in their spiritual walk. And so you have this Aquinas distinction between clergy and laity ever, uh, in the church today. You all, it does not exist in Scripture. It simply doesn't exist in Scripture. And it most certainly never exists on the Sermon on the Mount. There is no distinction in the Sermon on the Mount between people who are but barely disciples, and who are, I mean, there's just no words for it, real disciples. I don't know what you would call it. It just doesn't exist. 
The Sermon on the Mount is addressed to every one of us who have been forgiven of our sins and have committed our life to Jesus. Now, there are two groups of people in the sermon. That's for sure. There's one group that looks for the narrow gate. Their task is hard, and there are a few that go through that narrow gate and find life. And then there's a second group where the gate is wide, it's easy to get through, and many go to it to their destruction. So there certainly are two groups of people in the Sermon on the Mount. There are those who hear the word of God and do them. And Jesus says, you are the wise person who builds your house upon the rock so that it will stand up under the storms of life. And there's a second group of people who hear the words of God but don't do them. And those are the fools who build their houses on the sand and they're destroyed in the storms. So, yes, there are two groups of people in the Sermon on the Mount. There are those who are disciples... Narrow gate, house on the rock, hearing and doing. And then there are those who are fools, who hear the word of God and don't do it, who take the easy road through the wide gate, which leads to destruction. So there are two groups of people in the Sermon on the Mount, but there are no two divisions of disciples, either here or elsewhere in Scripture. Either you are a disciple or you aren't a disciple. One of the wonderful biblical doctrines that was emphasized in the Reformation was the priesthood of all believers. And the doctrine of the priesthood of all believers basically says that the ground is level at the foot of the cross, that there is no higher-tiered disciple. I don't need to go through a priest to get to God. I don't need to confess to a priest to get to God. There's only one who stands between me and God, and that is my mediator, Jesus Christ, who is interceding for the saints. He's the one that I want between me and the judge. But there is no disciple between me and God. We are all priests. We are a kingdom of priests, 1 Peter 2. We are all called to declare the glories of of him who called us out of darkness into his wonderful light. So please don't look at the Sermon on the Mount and say, well, that's all fine and good for Bill. I mean, that's his job. We pay him to be religious. (laughs) I don't do what I do because you pay me. (laughs) That's not my commitment. If you don't know me, you need to know that. I do it because it's the calling of my life. And I don't do it because I'm this religious guy so that you all can sit on the fringes. That's heresy, I believe, at the very core of its being because it goes after, it attacks the core doctrines of salvation and getting into heaven. The Sermon on the Mount is addressed to all disciples. You disagree with a man like Aquinas very carefully. Uh, but I firmly disagree with him. And I want to add, too, that the Sermon on the Mount is addressed to all disciples of all times. Now, I've promised that uh, when I say something that's somewhat controversial, I'll tell you. And 20 or 30 years ago, that probably wouldn't have been a controversial statement. The Sermon on the Mount is for all disciples of all times. But that controversy, as far as I can tell, is pretty much past. There may be some people who disagree with it. But the Sermon on the Mount is not an ethic that is to be relegated to the millennial kingdom or relegated to those few days before Christ's return. 
The fact of the matter is that most, if not all, of the commands in the Sermon on the Mount are repeated elsewhere in the epistles, in the letters to the churches. And so this is not a, a nice collection of teachings that someday will apply to someone else, but they apply to every one of us who are disciples right now. So the Sermon on the Mount is addressed to all disciples. The third general issue I wanted to address, and this is really the main one, and this is going to come up over and over and over again, and in fact will come up in every sermon, and so you need to get used to me using these words, and I want to make sure that we have the same definition of the words. Discipleship in God's kingdom is countercultural. I'm using the, the phrase from the title of John Stott's book, Christian Counterculture. Discipleship in the kingdom of God is countercultural. What does that mean? Well, it means that at almost every level, what we believe and how we live, we must be different from the world. That's countercultural. In what we say, in what we do, in what we believe, in our goals, in our values, and the list just goes on and on. We are different from the world. We are to live counter-cultural lives. This world values individual achievement, rugged independence, right? Have you ever seen a movie made about someone who is truly poor in spirit or meek? The world says, you have rights. Grab onto them and sue everyone in sight. The world, the Bible says, no, treat other people like you want them to treat you. And if they don't treat you the way that they should, love them anyway, even when they're your enemies. The world says, grab all the gusto you can. You only go around life once. An old beer commercial, I think it was. Ethics of the kingdom says amass wealth in heaven. Live in such a way. Use God's wealth in such a way that you're sending it on ahead instead of amassing it here. At almost at every level, what we believe and how we behave is countercultural. It's different from the world. And the Sermon on the Mount will force you to choose. This is part of the power of the language. You cannot read the Sermon on the Mount and dismiss it. It forces you to choose because it's going to tell us you can't live in two kingdoms. We have the, the kingdom of this world and we have the countercultural kingdom of God and you're going to have to choose which one. You're going to be a citizen in the kingdom of God or you're going to be a, king, a, a citizen of earth. And try as you might, and we all try this, we try to straddle the fence, don't we? We love, well, some of our enemies, kind of, some of the time, until it gets really annoying. Then we read Psalm 109 and wish God's curses on them. <laughs> or pick your psalm. I mean, I fight this. We all fight this, don't we? That we, we, we like to straddle this fence with one foot in the kingdom of earth and enjoying all its pleasures and one foot in the kingdom of heaven and making sure we get to heaven. And you can't do that. The Sermon on the Mount simply will not allow you to straddle the fence because kingdom life is countercultural. Kingdom life is radical. 
And this thought permeates every single paragraph in the three chapters of the Sermon on the Mount. And frankly, this shouldn't be new to us. If you've read the Bible, if you've never read the Sermon on the Mount, this message is all the way through uh, the New Testament and the Old. When Paul's writing the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians 6, he's trying to say, come out and be different from everyone else. And starting at verse 16, partway through, he says, For we are the temple of the living God, as God has said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk with them. This is us. And I will be their, our God, and we will be God's people. Therefore, because we are the temple of God, here's what we have to do. Go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then... Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. The terminology in John 17 is that we are in the world, but we are not of the world. So this message of being different is not unique to the Sermon on the Mount. It's right here in the letter to 2 Corinthians, and Paul's quoting Leviticus. This was what the nation Israel was supposed to be. Exodus 19, they were to be different from the rest of the world. They were to be a kingdom of priests. They were to mediate God to the rest of the world. And that means that they were supposed to be different. So this message of being called out and being different is not unique to the sermon. It's all the way through the New Testament. And as you look at this sermon, we are going to find places where it is absolutely explicit, where there's no question at all. For example, in Matthew 6, verse 24, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. In other words, you cannot serve God and money. You cannot serve God and man and physical, material possessions. So sometimes the sermon is going to be just absolutely explicit that you can't straddle this particular fence. But at other times, it's going to be implicit, this idea of counterculture. We're called to be the salt of the earth. We're called not to blend in. We're called to be radically different. And as we are different and as we live out our lives as members of God's kingdom, Part of our function as salt-preserved meat, so also we preserve society. And in the American church, as you've seen the church more and more conform, you've seen the effect that society is no longer being preserved, aren't you? It's all over the place. We're called to be the light of the world. We're called to be different because people need to see that we're different. They need to see our good works. Not good works trying to earn salvation, but good works that are an expression of our thankfulness to God for all the merciful things that he's done to us. Changed people live in a changed way. And when people see these good works, they will give glory to our Father who is in heaven. Now, the world is self-indulgent, and the Sermon on the Mount calls us to live lives of self-denial, where if we're going to retaliate, we can only retaliate with kindness. So this countercultural thrust of the Sermon on the Mount is both explicit and implicit all the way through the Sermon on the Mount. And as I hinted at, I think if we're honest, we would understand that the American church has failed miserably in this task, has it not? 
American church, by and large, has been conformed to this world. It is not salt and light. Statistically, as I've often said, there is no discernible difference between the world and the evangelical church. The only caveat there is those evangelical churches that know what they believe show a considerable difference from the world, and I trust we are in that subgrouping. Martin Lloyd-Jones, in his book, Studies in the Sermon on the Mount, 60 Sermons on the Sermon, uses the word superficial to make the same point. Page 13, he says, The world today is looking for and desperately needs true Christians. I am never tired of saying that what the church needs to do is not to organize evangelistic campaigns to attract outside people, but to begin herself to live the Christian life. Now, I don't know if Lloyd-Jones would actually be opposed to an evangelistic service. But if everyone in this church, if everyone in the evangelical churches in Spokane truly lived countercultural lives, were salt and light to their neighbors, we wouldn't need an evangelistic outreach, would we? Because we would be, the Spirit through us would be impacting lives. And even the media could not ignore what was going on. If we truly were living countercultural lives, we should be the greatest nonconformists that the world has ever seen. I think the church in Indonesia is a good model for us at this point. The greatest genocide up to about a year ago, was the Muslims killing the Christians in Indonesia. They were annihilating entire villages that had, had become Christian. And it was a genocide unlike the world has seen in a long, long time. When the tsunami hit, a most amazing thing happened. And you're not going to hear this on the news, but if you talk to people who have actually gone over, they'll tell you this. The thing that is absolutely shocking is that what's left of the Christian church in Indonesia is serving the Muslims. They are feeding them. They are clothing them. They are finding homes for their children. The persecuted church in Indonesia is living such a radically countercultural life that when the tsunami came through and killed so many, instead of, yay, go get them, God, they turned and they lived countercultural lives and they loved their enemies they served their enemies. They cared for their enemies. I wonder what's going to happen to the persecution in Indonesia. I wonder what's going to happen to the growth of the church in Indonesia because they are living Sermon on the Mount, countercultural kingdom lives. I would encourage you all to be uncomfortable. Get ready to be uncomfortable. It's going to take me two years to get through this sermon. I will probably take a break next summer and let you take a breath. But it takes that long to get through this. And if you want to see kind of where I'm headed, pick up Dietrich Bonhoeffer's book, The Cost of Discipleship. That is his book, that is his understanding of the Sermon on the Mount. And you will see where I believe the Sermon on the Mount is leading all of us. Discipleship in the kingdom of God is radically countercultural. Fourth major issue, 
How are we going to understand the extreme nature of Jesus' ethic? This is a really, really hard question. And we'll struggle with it again in almost every single paragraph. How, do you, how are you going to handle it when Jesus says, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off? How are you going to handle it when he says, if you've lust, you're an adulterer? How are you going to handle God's demand in our lives that we be perfect? I mean, there should be in our hearts a struggle with the absolute nature of the kingdom ethics at almost every turn in these three chapters. And I know what the general tendency is because it's my tendency as well. And that is, well, Jesus can't possibly mean what he's saying, so I'm going to ignore it. I don't know if I've ever actually turned the other cheek, not, not in a physical sense anyway. And I, and I know that is what our tendency is to do. Say, well, it can't possibly mean that. So I'll go read something else. Let me give you just a couple of helps along these lines, and this whole issue will be revisited every week. A, our interpretation of each verse must give full weight to Jesus' words. That is critical. We cannot water down the clear teaching of Jesus in this passage. Because the fact of the matter is, it is better to go through life with one eye and end up in heaven than to go through life with two eyes and end up in hell, isn't it? I mean, that is a true statement. The kingdom of God is for those who are poor in spirit. It's not for the arrogant and the haughty and the self-sufficient. The kingdom of God is for those who are poor, who have admitted their bankruptcy before God. That's a true statement. We can't water that down. If we, above all else, seek the kingdom of God, then everything we need will be given to us. I mean, if we water down these verses, then there's no strength, there's no, there's no assurance in these wonderful three chapters. So, on the one hand, we, we dare not water these verses down, no matter how much they might hurt. But on the other hand, B, our interpretation can't be simplistic. I, that's not a good word, but I couldn't think of another one. We have to be careful to always understand these verses in context. We can't be simplistic in them. Because it is typical of Jesus to overstate a truth because he wants to drive a point home. And he's not claiming that that's the only thing that you need to know about this topic. There's often other things going on. But Jesus will drive points home in very annoying ways, doesn't he? For example, it was the practice of the Pharisees to time their walking on the streets so that when it came to be the time of public prayer and the horn from the temple would blow, that they just happen to be on the biggest street corner in Jerusalem. So they could sit there and pray during the prayer time and get all the glory of man. Others would evidently hire bands to go before them. And when they got ready to pray, they would toot their own horn. I'm assuming that's where the expression came from. And they would blow the horn and, Pastor Bill's about to pray. Everyone listen to him. He's really religious. 
Or they would go into the temple and blow their horn and throw the coins in so that everybody could see all the money they were giving. I doubt they threw in a lot of dollar bills, probably lots of quarters to make lots of noise. I don't know. But Jesus is looking at this way of praying he says, don't do that. They have their reward in full. All they get is the shallow praise of men. Don't go into your room and shut the door and pray to God. Well, does that mean we can never pray in public? Because then I sinned about 20 minutes ago. And in the next chapter, Jesus is going to teach them how to pray. And he's going to say, our Father. That's a corporate prayer. And we know that Jesus many times prayed in public, at least with his disciples, at least at Gethsemane he prayed with them. So that is the balance that we need to do on this, that we need to give full weight to Jesus' words, to not water them down. But as we try to interpret them, we simply can't be simplistic. We can't see stuff out of context and see that Jesus is often driving one point home and understand it that way. So it is, it is a difficult thing to interpret some of these things, but we have to balance that. But there is one final thing that needs to be said, and it has to do, again, with the extreme nature of the ethic. And this is a tad theological, and you're going to learn some new words. That's good. But as we look at the Sermon on the Mount, I'm going to be using the words already and not yet a lot. Sometimes I'll talk about fulfillment and consummation. This is the final and the ultimate clue for how we are to interpret the Sermon on the Mount. Here's what I mean by these words. Jesus teaches that the kingdom of God is already present. If I, by the finger of God, cast out demons, then you can know that the kingdom of God has come in your midst. Jesus says. The kingdom of God is already present. It's present right now, and it's present in the heart and the lives of his children, and he is reigning and he is ruling in our hearts. In other words, God's promise of a coming kingdom is present. It is realized. It is here and now. That's the already. That's the fulfillment part of the Christian ethic. And yet, at the same time, the kingdom of God is not here in its fullness. That there is a final consummation of the kingdom. That's why we pray in the Lord's Prayer, may your kingdom come. Why are we praying that if it's already here? Because it is already here in my life and in the lives of the disciples of Jesus Christ. God is ruling and reigning in our lives. And yet there comes a time in which God's kingdom will come in its fullness. Sin will be fully eradicated. We will live in the presence of our king. And there's a sense in which that is still in the future, is it not? It's like, is Jesus Lord? Yes, there are people who don't recognize that, but Jesus is Lord. And yet Paul tells the Philippians church that at the end of times, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. When it comes to ethics, here's the point. We live in the tension of the in-between times. 
We live in the tension of God's kingdom and his rule already coming in our lives. And yet we know that in its fullness, it awaits a consummation. We know that the mastery of sin has been broken in our lives. We no longer have to sin. And yet we will struggle with sin until we are present with God face to face and sin will be no more. So we live, and this, this is where the Christian ethic comes in, we are in this tension. And so, for example, by the power of the Spirit, we strive to be poor in spirit. We want to understand what that is here and now. And to some degree, we know that we are bankrupt before God in and of ourselves. And yet it's nothing compared to what we are going to understand when we're in heaven. We here and now mourn over our sin. And to some degree, we are comforted. But it's nothing compared to the comfort that waits for us in heaven. Here and now, we hunger and thirst for righteousness, for God's righteousness. And yet it's going to be nothing compared to what's going to happen when we are in heaven. And we are satisfied now, but nothing compared to what will be like in heaven. That's the already but not yet, the fulfillment of the kingdom promise and the consummation. That just as the kingdom of God is not here in its entirety, so also we will never be fully poor in the spirit until sin is removed and we stand in the presence of our king at the consummation of his kingdom. And so as we look at the call on our lives or the Sermon on the Mount, we have to understand that we live in that Tension. One writer writes, although we may not reach the stars, they still serve us well as reliable navigational aids. We will never in this life fully seek the kingdom of God. It's just not possible. Does that mean we give up? We ignore it? We say, oh, that's for someone else? No, we say, by the power of God's spirit, at least to some degree, I can head towards that star. I can head towards seeking above all else the kingdom of God. And the longer we live and the more we seek, the deeper and deeper our joy becomes and the more it pervades our entire being. And there's joy in that, isn't there? Just because you mess up here and goof up there, otherwise known as sin, it doesn't mean we stop. Just because we can't reach perfection doesn't mean we don't head towards that goal. And so we strive for poverty of spirit, for mourning, for hungering and thirsting for righteousness, for being peacemakers, for loving our enemies, for treating other people like we would have them treat us, of living in the confidence that whatever we ask God, he will answer. I mean, we live in that tension of doing that, of moving that direction. We all are on a continuum. That's another way to say it. We're all on a continuum. And here's hell, and here's heaven, and we who are disciples are somewhere in between, moving towards what we are going to become. The Sermon on the Mount is a picture of who we are in Christ. It's a picture of what we are becoming by the power of God's Spirit. And it's a picture of ultimately who we will be as we stand before the throne of our King. It's a radical it's a countercultural manifesto of what it is to live life in the kingdom of God. Let's pray. 
Father, I understand that these are, in a sense, just words. But whether I can put them into practice, by even by the power of your Spirit this afternoon, waits to be seen. Father, my prayer for myself, our prayer for one another and ourselves, is that as we work through the sermon, that your spirit will encourage, your spirit will convict, that we will look at those areas of our life that are not under your lordship, and we will seek, not because we're legalists or stoical or strong-willed, but because your spirit is at work in our hearts and is changing our hearts, and those changes work out into our everyday life. We pray that those changes will start to show themselves more and more in the ethics of your kingdom. Father, may we know what it is to be poor in spirit and all that that means. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Biblical Training Podcast. Please visit our website, biblicaltraining.org for access to over 130 classes and 2,100 hours of teaching. Or you can download our Apple or Android app. We're glad to be able to supply these resources for you for free. But we are a nonprofit donation-based ministry and need your gifts to continue. If you're able, please click the Donate button on our website and donate today, ensuring that many others will be able to learn the Bible and grow spiritually. Thank you.